My name is Brandon Bullock. Um, I'll give you a little brief backstory for me, okay? So I grew up in Cincinnati, um, born and raised there, and then I moved up to Columbus for college. I went to Ohio State. And uh, while in college, I really renewed my relationship with Jesus. I had always grown up in the church, but uh, it was there where I really found my faith. And I started to get more involved with ministry. And I went on staff with a college church there. It was called New Life OSU. And from there, I actually transferred from Ohio State University to Liberty University, which is a college out in Lynchburg, Virginia. I did the distance learning program, so I got to stay in Columbus and work with my church and got to do ministry and then go to school at the same time. And since that time, after graduating in about, let's see, that would be 07 now, uh, I was what I would call a substitute preacher, okay? Uh, our church was affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and so whenever there was a need at a church in the state of Ohio for someone to come in short notice, uh, they would call uh, a, per- a contact I had who would then get in contact with me and I would go and preach at those churches when they were in need. Uh, many times it was actually for negative things. Uh, I remember the very first time I preached uh, was when the pastor's wife had died the night before. So it, it, it's usually in short notice uh, I was involved, and I got to do that for, I've been doing that since 07, I would say. Uh, so this is actually not new to me to come into a church body and not know anybody. Um, you guys don't know me. Uh, but I, I hope that as I teach the Word, you'll, you'll, you'll have trust in that, okay? Uh, how I teach the Word is that I go through expositionally, so their expository preaching is what it's called, where I go verse by verse through each text. I do use a lot of reference verses, okay? So you will be flipping through your Bible. I'll tell you exactly where it is. Um, but I also like to use a lot of Old Testament passages to help solidify what I'm teaching in the New Testament, okay? So that, that's kind of my background and how I teach. Um, and so let me pray for us now that you know me a little better uh, so that we can uh, talk about God's word here. So, uh, Father, we just praise you for your word. Uh, we are so thankful for it that it is a treasure that we can open up freely and, and hear you speak in it. I pray that, that you would use me uh, to speak your word today, uh, that I would not be a distraction, but that your word would uh, come to light and that people would treasure it. Father, that, that is my prayer today, and that... Um, when they hear it, Father, that, that you would do things with it and that they would, they would act on your word. So we just thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So recently, I was in one of my best friend's weddings. It was about a couple weeks ago. Um, and I'm also doing my cousin's wedding in a, in a month or so. So I'm officiating it. And so weddings have been on my mind for the past, it'll be for two months. Uh, and anytime there's a wedding, I always sit back and reflect on, you know, first of all, my own marriage. I am married. Uh, my wife is actually serving at our church this morning. Uh, and we have two boys, uh, three and one and a half, almost, it'll be two. Um, and so I reflect on my own marriage. I reflect on what God was doing with marriage when he created it. And I always ask the question, I go, where did this start? You know, most, most weddings will have a verse about, you know, from Ephesians 5 that says, this mystery is profound. Paul is talking and he says, uh, talking about marriage, and this references Christ and the church, this idea of marriage representing that. And, and I always reflect and I go, where did that start? Was there something prior to Paul addressing it in Ephesians that maybe there was a clue to that? Um, and the first verse I want to talk about today is actually found way back in Deuteronomy. Okay? So if you would open up to Deuteronomy chapter 10, that's where we're going to be. Um, 
So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And to give a little context, uh, Moses had just smashed the Ten Commandments because he came down the mountain and Israel was worshiping a golden calf. And so this is actually the second giving of the, the, the commandments. God asked him to get another set of tablets here. And so he, he's giving them a second law, but he's giving them a, a reason for it. He's saying, this is why I'm giving you a new law here. So in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Behold, the Lord your God belonged to heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth that is all in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. For he is your praise, he is your God. Who has done these great things, great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen? Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So, when God is giving them this new set of laws here, he, He's saying, You're entering now into a relationship with me. Okay? And I want you to notice the wording here where He says um, about holding fast, because that's the same wording used all the way back in Genesis at the beginning when God created Adam and Eve. And he said, therefore, man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife. The exact same Hebrew word is used there that's used in this passage. So God is saying, you're entering into this marriage with me now. And that's what's going to mark this relationship. It's a marriage. Okay? This relationship with God is now a marriage. And you see that way back in Deuteronomy. And you can even argue it's way back in Genesis as well. Um, but I, when I think about weddings and marriages, I, I always go, okay, this is not a new concept. The fact that our spiritual relationship is exactly, uh, is paralleled to our, merit, our marriages, okay? And so God is saying, this is what has been established, is that when you enter into faith with me, it's a marriage. But quickly, as you read throughout the scriptures, and I know you guys are going through the word of God together, as you read through it, you'll see that, that there's one uh, common theme throughout, and that is unfaithfulness. So the people of God who were chosen by God, as he says in this passage in Deuteronomy, they were chosen by him uh, to be his bride. They are unfaithful to him continually. You just read story after story through the Old Testament of them being unfaithful to their God, worshiping other gods, wishing that they had other kings. And just, just the unfaithfulness is all throughout Scripture. And the whole time, though, God doesn't forsake them. And this is one of the, I think, a mystery of God, why he didn't forsake them. If it were me in that situation, I probably would have chosen another group of people. But God did not. He kept being faithful to this bride that was not faithful to him. And as you keep reading, um, you see these promises come up again and again. The next verse I want to look at is actually Second Chronicles. Um, it's a little further past Deuteronomy. Um, Second Chronicles 36, it's towards the end. Okay. 
So the story, Israel repents generally, of, and they start following God again, and then they slide right back. And it's just continual cycle where they just, they love God, and then they don't love God, just continually. And then finally what happens is God rejects them fully, okay? What happens is the kingdom splits in two uh, at, right after Solomon, and it was, it's Israel on the north, Judah in the south. And Israel, what happens is they're really unfaithful to God, and they get taken into captivity, into Assyria. Okay? And Judah remains because there were some faithful kings left in Judah. Uh, but Israel has been taken captive, the northern kingdom. And so what we see here in Second Chronicles 36, verse 15, uh, is basically why this is occurring. And I think it's a beautiful summation statement of the entire Old Testament and Israel's relationship with God. Okay? So 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15 through 16, says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by the messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people until there was no remedy. So what you see here is finally it reached this point where God was sending them away. Okay? He was getting rid of them from the promised land, and he was going to promise something new. Okay? Um, so the promise that was coming was, again, found in another prophetic book. So if you turn to Jeremiah 31, I promised you would be a lot of turning. Sorry. Uh, Jeremiah 31 Verse 31 through 34. What God does, though, despite saying, I'm going to send you away, you know, I'm rejecting you as my people, he still gives them a promise. He still gives them a hope. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, starting there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So here, again, he's rejecting them. He's telling them, you rejected me even though I was your husband. There's that, again, parallel between marriage. God is saying, I'm going to give you hope here. That despite your unfaithfulness, despite your inability to keep, your, to keep my commandments, I'm still going to do something. It's going to be him that's going to act. Okay, and again, the wording here, we looking back at this know exactly what this is referring to. This is referring to Jesus, okay? Jesus is going to be the the new covenant. Jesus is going to be the solution to all of our problems here. Uh, And so what God is promising is Jesus, and that it's not like the old covenant. It's not like the old law, because now it's going to be on our hearts. Now it's something that is internal. It's not something external that we do, Okay. Um, and so this is the connection I'm making here between marriage and what Jesus is going to do here. Um, so there's a passage in the New Testament. This is going to be our text for the, for the day, okay? Uh, it comes in John chapter 4. And 
This is actually one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Uh, it's kind of an obscure one. I mean, it's famous for the title, The Woman at the Well, but uh, it's a little obscure. Um, and the reason why I want to share this passage is because I think this story and this encounter with Jesus is a perfect parallel to our spiritual relationship with God. Okay? Uh, and you're going to see there's a lot of points in here that actually reference back to the Old Testament. And there's a lot of things that, for future-wise, we can, we can point to and say, this is how God wants our relationship to be with him. So, starting in John 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that, John, or that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So a lot of locations here that he's mentioning, uh, trying to give you a place and, and a time of what's going on. For me, the most important part is, is the time of day right here. So it says the sixth hour. Uh, I don't know if your translation says something about noon, but think of it as the sixth hour of sunlight. So the sun rises at 6 a.m., six hours later is noon. So that's pretty much the time here is noon. Uh, and a little context, uh, people don't go to wells in the middle of the day because it's hot. So uh, he wasn't expecting to see anybody. Okay? So that, that's really the context here. Um, next verses, 7 through 9 here. A woman from Samaria came out to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So first, here comes this woman that is drawing water at this time, which is strange because women either draw water in the mornings or towards the evening when it's cooler. Um, and she comes, and the first thing that Jesus says to her, it's not a pleasantry, it's not hello, how are you doing? It's very strange that it's, give me a drink of water. Can you give me a drink? Um, that question may seem on the surface strange and perhaps a little cold, we'll say. It doesn't seem very heartfelt, or it's almost like a, a command here. Uh, but there is a specific reason for that that I'm going to address later. So, Keep your mind on that statement. Give me a drink of water. Um, but it, it, to me, when I read that, I go, that's very strange. That's the first thing that Jesus said to her. And then her response to him is also very strange. Why are you asking me for this drink of water? You should not be talking to me. Somehow Jesus was identified as a Jew. I don't know how, his appearance wise. But somehow she knew immediately that he was Jewish. Um, and then she's saying, why are you asking me? You don't, Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. Uh, the reason for that actually again comes from the Old Testament. Uh, it comes actually in Second Kings, chapter seventeen, and what happens in there is I'll read it for you. Flip there. Second Kings here. So again, the scenario here is if you mention I said the kingdom had split in two, and Assyria or Assyria had captured Israel and taken them away. And what happens in this section is that then the king of Assyria says, okay, actually I'm going to now bring people from Assyria and put them in Israel. 
okay? And what he does there is he brings all these foreign people to the land, okay? And what it says in 2 Kings 17, verse 24, it says, And the king of Syria brought people from Babylon um, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, and therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he sent his lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the, land, uh, the, law of the God of the land. So, it's a, so one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities that they had lived. And skip down to verse 33. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So... Why do Jews not have any dealings with Samaritans? Because they are what they would call half-breeds. Okay? They, they were part Jewish, part Gentile, and they didn't just worship Yahweh, they worshipped other gods. So we want your God, but then we're going to have our other gods as well. So they worshipped many gods, including Yahweh. So that's why the Jews had no dealings with them whatsoever. So this woman is correct in saying that, that you know, why are you asking me for this? Um, so as we read, continue in John 4, uh, verse 10 through 15 here. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. So, Jesus takes this conversation and brings it to the spiritual side of it. Okay? Uh, He says, actually, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would ask and he would give you living water. Um, That phrase, again, might seem very strange, living water. Where does does that come from? Uh, Well, in the Old Testament, again, you don't have to flip there, I'll just read it here. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 2. And Jeremiah is the prophet that God sent to his people to say, this is why you're going into captivity. This is why you're being conquered by these other nations and why God is taking the land away from you. And what he says at the very beginning of Jeremiah in 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. It's the first time that's mentioned. Fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So that's where that verse comes from. A cistern was a, type, a method of water, um, I guess, re- retention. So you had a well, and then you had a cistern. And cistern was an inefficient way of doing it. Wells were much better. But cisterns would just basically carry rainwater to a place. And then God's saying, you're actually hewing out broken cisterns. And that means that there's just mud and dirt and nasty stuff in there. So what you've done is you've forsaken me, and you're trying to do this all on your own. Get this living water, and it's not working. 
Um, but that's where the phrase living water comes from. So potentially this is a statement of deity from Jesus where he's saying, I can give this water, this living water. Um, and so he says that to her. And it, what happens then is that, that, that God is saying, or Jesus is saying in this scenario, I can give this to you. This that you're seeking, I can give it to you. Uh, but what happens is the woman doesn't actually understand this because then she's like, well, how can you give me water that the well is deep? You don't have anything. So she's not understanding that he's actually talking about spiritual things. And so Jesus does something very interesting here in, in, in talking with her. She asks for the water. She asks for this living water. And Jesus in verse 16 says, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, uh, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Okay, let me pause there. Because um, what happens here, Jesus says, go and call your husband, and she's like, oh, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. Uh, you actually have had five husbands, and the man you're currently with is not. So what Jesus does is call out her adultery right there. Uh, again, this may seem cold and a little harsh for Jesus to do that. There is a reason for it, because this woman is asking for eternal life. She's saying, give me this life that you're offering, this living water. And Jesus immediately addresses her problem. Her problem is adultery. She is not living in a way that is honoring to God, and so he immediately addresses that root problem. The problem is adultery. And I, I, I laugh when I hear the woman's reaction, oh, I see that you're a prophet. So, uh, to me, that's funny because, yes, he is a prophet because he just called her out on her adultery and she had no idea that he knew that, right? Uh, and so she's a little shocked by that. But uh, in this story, again, I'm making a parallel to marriage here. This woman is representing us, okay? She's representing our spiritual state where both prior to Jesus, we were adulterers. We went after many different things besides God. And even after becoming believers, sometimes we tend to, to, to go towards other things. And so Jesus is saying the root of her problem is adultery. And I believe the root of our problem is adultery when coming to Jesus. Um, and so he's pointing that out to her. And, you know, he says, you've had five husbands. And then she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, there's a whole other sermon here on evangelism. Uh, because when you really study how Jesus interacts with this woman... It's beautiful to see how he takes each little thing that she says and turns it to the spiritual side, but then also isn't afraid to answer her question that she brings up. And the best way I can uh, give an analogy here is when you're talking with uh, non-believers about Scripture, typically when you bring up a sin issue, they will change the subject immediately. Okay? And they'll bring out some obscure thing that they believe about God or something that they're mad about God. So, for example, you're talking about how they're not living their life according to the scriptures, right? And they say, well, why does God allow children to die of cancer? That's, that's typically what people do, is they change the subject to get it off of them onto some obscure thing that doesn't actually impact them in any way. And what Jesus does is he actually goes with her there, but again, always pointing back. And you'll see that here. He says, when she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Again, keep the context. He just called her out on her adultery. 
She's had five husbands, and the man she's currently with is not her husband. And she says, let's talk about worship. Okay? That's that. They switched it right there is what she did. She's on a tangent now. And Jesus said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay. So, she wants to talk about worship? Okay, let's talk about worship. Worship doesn't matter in this context to her. Okay, he's saying, there's coming a time where where you worship doesn't matter. What is going to matter is your heart, where true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. So again, he goes with her on the tangent, but then directs it right back to what he's trying to do, get to that spiritual uh, brokenness in her and say, this is what's going to, what matters is the spirit and truth and worshiping. And if you tie it back to when we talked about Jeremiah 31, this new covenant that God's going to put people, it's going to write the law on their hearts, they're going to know the law. That's what Jesus is referencing. The time is now here because he's the fulfillment of that promise. And so he says that to this woman. And then again, she changes the subject, which is typical. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, which again, sounds very strange. And Jesus then says, I'm him, which is, again, an amazing statement of deity right there. And it's beautiful because he's taken this woman from, I don't know who you are, what are you doing, to now, I'm the Messiah, in a span of two minutes, okay? And he, prom- he says, I am that Messiah. Uh, and I-, I just love Jesus' analogy of, again, the-, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, um, and the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's a beautiful statement from him. Um, now, this may seem strange. Again, I, I started the sermon talking about marriage, and then this passage doesn't seem to have anything to do with marriage right now, but I promise you it does. Uh, first, I want to address what this woman represents to us. Again, I mentioned she is a picture of our relationship with God. She represents our literal adultery against God. Uh, because, you know, we've all worshipped other things besides him. In this case, this woman is literally in an adulterous relationship with someone. So it represents Israel's state of that as well. It represents the spiritual adultery we have, because she's worshipping other gods, okay? And it represents Israel's past adultery. So there's a history of this. She's a Samaritan. Samaritan, they're historically people that don't worship God. So there's three ways that she represents that, and that's a larger picture of Israel, it's a picture of us spiritually, and uh, there's an amazing parallel to this in the Old Testament. Okay, This will be my last verse here that we'll go through. Uh, what happens here is this story is not what I'll call new. Okay, this, Something similar has actually happened before in the Old Testament, and I, I'm going to read it, and I want you to notice the parallels of the story because there's actually a beautiful message at the end of it. And it'll help answer John chapter 4 for us, okay? So it's actually at the beginning in Genesis 24. Genesis 24, we're going to read 12 through 18. 
Sorry, we're going to read verse 11. Genesis 24, starting at verse 11 through 18 here. Um, scenario is, this is story of Isaac and Rebekah. Okay? Isaac, the promised son that was promised to Abraham. And uh, obviously we know that story of how that worked out. And Isaac now needs a bride. The son of, or the, the person who was the promise, the son, needs a bride. Okay? And so in verse 11 we start, Genesis 24. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water uh, at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Okay, uh, So first, I, I completely forgot, sorry, to give you the context of Isaac is looking for a wife, and so he sends his servant to this land where his father was from, and his relatives are there. So he sends a servant to go look for a wife. Again, very strange. Why do you send a servant to go look for a wife? But he sends him there. And the servant goes to this, area, this, this well here. And that's where we pick up. He made the camels kneel down outside the city where the well of water, the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. Remember I mentioned that women don't draw water in the middle of the day, draw in the morning or at evening. So here's a time when women are supposed to be at the well at night. Um, verse 12. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So he's sitting there. I don't know if you've ever done this with God where you have this goal, and you're like, God, I need you to do something here. As a way of confirmation, can you do something? Can you, can you tell this person or have them act a certain way so that I know it's from you? And so the servant's praying, and he's saying, you know, please bless Abraham, please bless Isaac here. Let the woman I say give me a drink to, let her respond in a certain way. And then I'll know that's the wife, okay? And so he's praying that, and in verse 15, before he had finished speaking, as he's praying, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. So, story. She comes, here's this beautiful woman. And Rebecca was known for her beauty, it says throughout Scripture. She was one of the most beautiful women in the world. Um, and she comes, she's a virgin. No one has known her. She's pure, is what we would call that. And he says, please give me a drink of water. And she does. Um, I hope you're starting to see the parallels here. So, in this story, this Old Testament story, there is a servant looking for a bride of the promised son, and he goes to this woman and says, give me a drink. That's what he says there. Fast forward to John 4. There's a woman, okay? There's a servant, God, also the son, God, looking for a bride, okay? But 
In this story in Genesis, the bride is beautiful. She's spotless. Okay, nothing wrong with her. Story in John, she is not spotless. She's an adulterous woman. And I hope you see that God, who comes, is promising that he will take this adulterous bride to be his wife. So if we go back to John 4, I want you to see that, okay? Oops. John 4, Jesus is sitting there waiting. If you remember it, I said, what a strange statement to make to this woman that comes up to you that you've never met. Give me a drink of water. It's because I believe that's because Jesus had in his mind the story of Isaac and Rebekah and how they met. And here, Jesus is telling us, God is confirming to us who his bride is going to be. His bride is going to be an adulterous woman. She's not going to be beautiful. Okay? In this context, she's a whore, in fact. She did not know God. She was rebellious towards God and had many lovers. But Jesus is saying, give me a drink. That is the bride he is choosing to make his wife. And I, I am blown away by that because it's encouraging to me as a believer when I wasn't following God to think that I could approach this God and that he would actually accept me. Uh, for those struggling, perhaps, with the idea of you're not good enough for God, uh, there is no requirement for God. It's that you would come to him. That is the requirement. Um, and here, this woman, she's engaging. She didn't know who this was at the time, but she's literally speaking face-to-face with God and having this beautiful conversation, and God is interacting with her. And I'm always blown away by that. And she, in this context, she represents everything Israel was to God, unfaithful, adulterous, yet here God is speaking to her, seeking them out to fulfill all of the promises that he made. So when we look at our lives, um, what we see is that God has been faithful from the beginning. He has asked us to be in a marriage. He has asked us to follow him and love him with all our heart, but we have failed him. And so God has been faithful when we are not. And that's kind of the point I want you to get from this. And, and I mentioned marriage, and I want you to know that, that we're in this relationship with God, and what he wants from us is faithfulness. He wants you to love him. Think about your earthly marriage. Think about the marriages you've seen. Maybe you're not married in this room. Think about the marriages you've seen. God wants us to be in this relationship with him, faithful. So that's how both men and women can relate to this. He wants us to be faithful in this scenario. Um, and so question I have for you in closing is, where are you going to drink? Okay. She was drinking from another source, a broken cistern. She was going somewhere else for pleasure. And Jesus said, I can actually give you living water. I can sustain you. I can be that gift. I can be that promise. And so the question is, where are you going to drink? And I want you to be encouraged that Jesus is asking us that we can come to him for those needs. Come to him for, and he will give us that living water. Um, so that's in closing. I, I don't know, Jason, do you want to come up and pray here? Or can I close in prayer? Is that okay? All right. Uh, let me close here. Uh, Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Uh, I pray for people hearing this, that they would be encouraged, Jesus, that they would know that, that you are our savior, that this is the gospel here that you came to a rebellious people to redeem them as your bride, even though we are not worthy of it. 
and there's nothing we can do to earn it, but you have asked us to be your bride. So I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that as we seek after other things that our heart tends to wander, I pray that we would go to you, Jesus, the source of life, and, and, and give us this water as you promised. And so we just thank you for your word. I pray that then when we ask to speak to you, that we would open your word, that you would speak to us, Father. So we just thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.